Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm Vic Singh. Today, we're revisiting 2007's Wimbledon. Uh, the roof is a little bit different. There is no roof, actually. It, they lopped off everything to make way for the overhead retractable roof that we now know. Um, this is also where Roger collected his 11th Grand Slam title against his rival for the ages, Rafa Nadal. Brian, um, before we jump into stuff, a couple of topical things at the top uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on. Just yesterday, Roger announced that he's out for the rest of the year. What's your read on how that looks for him going forward? It's a bit of, uh, eh, and then it's kind of, okay, well, maybe there's some room for optimism. So it was always going to be strange as we sit here in early June and we're waiting to hear if and what tennis will look like for the rest of 2020. And it was always strange to think that a, at that point, he'll be 39-year-old Roger Federer is going to come back and play behind closed doors on a very abbreviated, choppy schedule coming off the procedure he had after the Australian Open. So he was always going to be out for the, uh, the spring hard courts and then the clay season. He was hoping to come back for the grass season. Once there was no grass season for 2020, and that decision was made a couple of months ago, the thought of him coming back this year, I, I think, made a little less sense. Um, so in some ways, from that perspective, it's good. From the other perspective, and we don't know much aside from the statement, the fact that he re-injured uh, or he suffered another setback during rehab, that's problematic. So is the fact that he's up against father time. He's going to be 40 years old next year. Um, so it's he's not getting any younger. This stuff doesn't get any easier to come back from. So I think the optimistic side of me wants to say, okay, this is smart. He shuts it down for the year. 2021, maybe that's the last run, maybe not. But if he's raring to go, and hopefully tennis is uh, certainly raring to go, obviously sooner than that, but definitely the beginning of 2021, then let's get a healthy and rejuvenated, revitalized Roger Federer to make another go at things, another go at 21, maybe a shot at an Olympic gold and all that. But yeah, not um, not the best news when you hear that about any athlete, but especially one getting up there in his years. Do we see him play Wimbledon at least one more time? Yeah, I think so. I don't see him not. Like he's not, you know, no player wants to retire hurt. Um, they want the decision. They want the decision to be made for them to make the decision. Um, some aren't so lucky, but yeah, he plays Wimbledon one more time, at least I would say. You mentioned tennis this year. Um, things are changing kind of like fluidly right now across the world and across all sports stuff is slowly coming back. They just, California just reopened Hollywood, but I'm literally in the middle of it right now and nobody's outside. So the regulations are loosening and stuff is starting to happen. What tournaments are happening this year? We still don't know as we sit here in June because, well, we know what's on the schedule and we know the things French that is have on not the schedule, been canceled. Right? It's on the schedule, but the date is still up in the air because what they did was sort of go in on their own right after they had to postpone it and they grabbed the week after the U.S. Open that they're going to start. Um, 
So there's a thought that, okay, maybe they're willing to compromise and push it back a week further. So you could perhaps fit another clay court warm-up event in there, maybe a Madrid, maybe a Rome. Um, we know that the tennis schedule is not happening prior to, I believe it's the first week of August. So that would be, I know on the men's side, Washington, D.C., which leads into Toronto, leads into Cincinnati. And there's the week that's usually a 250 level, Winston-Salem, a few other ones, then the U.S. Open. So as of now, that hasn't been changed, but it's going to look different, almost certainly. You know, who knows if Toronto for the men, if Cincinnati happens, if Washington happens, if the U.S. Open happens. So we only know what we're not having, and that's any ATP, WTA, or Grand Slam tennis prior to August 1st. Whether it happens after August 1st, that's still very much up in the air. But for right now, the U.S. Open is still scheduled for its normal time slot, Labor Day weekend around that time. That's still That never changed? It has never changed. Obviously, it's been uh, pretty heavily scrutinized. I think there was a point you know, six weeks ago here in New York where the situation was really grim and tragic. And I mean, they're using parts of the tennis center as a, you know, a hospital in the indoor practice courts. They're packing meals for volunteers and first responders in the new Louis Armstrong Stadium. So you're thinking, okay, th- there's no way they're playing tennis here this year. But as the situation has stabilized and gotten a little bit better in New York, I think the, the urge to do something has grown. So there's absolutely the feeling they want to play it. It's just a matter of will they be able to play it because of a whole host of different reasons. And uh, fans or no fans? Feel like no fans, right? It certainly seems like there won't be fans. Um, I mean, you can say with certainty that it's not going to be a packed stadium. Um, maybe by some miracle, if a, the slimmest number of fans can get in, but I, I don't see that happening either. Um, it's just there's so much we don't know, and it seems like they're going to make have to make that decision in the next month or so. And the, where they had some time, and they were smart at the U.S. Open, was because they knew they had time on their side. They're a hardcore event in New York. So hardcore, you can play any time of the year. Problem is the weather. You're not going to certainly move it up. It'll be too hot. It's hot at the end of August. You might think, okay, late September would be a great time to play the U.S. Open but you've got to deal with all the other tour events that are going on. Whereas Wimbledon did not have that luxury because when Wimbledon's hand was forced in early to mid April, you know, that tournament's two months away. You don't know what it's going to look like in terms of the coronavirus there at that time and grass court tennis. It has a very finite season because you're reliant on the grass, not a piece of concrete. So they really didn't have a choice. And they also conveniently had pandemic insurance. So they're in a lot better financial situation than pretty much every other tournament. Um, And that's the other thing that's interesting here is how every person who's in the game here has a certain interest, whereas this tournament is probably raring to go ahead. Another tournament might be thinking, you know what, let's just pull back a year because we're going to lose a lot of money if we don't have fans come. You know, the U.S. Open has its TV deals, so those would still be paid out. They also make a ton of money through ticket sales. Lower level tournaments they're far more reliant on ticket sales, so they're not going to want to go ahead as quickly. Uh, I'm speaking in generalities. You're not naming a specific tournament, but you would think they're not going to want to be as gung ho about playing something in 2020 with no fans because their financial losses are going to be more significant. Are people riding the subways and buses right now? Yeah. Um, the city looks a whole lot different than it did uh, yeah, six weeks ago. Like I said, I mean, everybody's wearing a mask. I'm talking about New York City here, which is good. And it's, I think people are, being cautious a lot, you know, you go in the garage, I just went grocery shopping today a few months ago. It's, 
you know, you're very leery of going grocery shopping, you're trying to get delivered, but the grocery store, you know, they've got, everybody's got to wear a mask, you've got the limitations on how many people can be in the store. So you never feel like, it doesn't feel like the usual grocery store experience where people are on top of each other. Um, so it, I think in a lot of ways, as far as New York goes, um, people have adjusted. That said, you know, there's a lot of businesses that have taken big hits. Some have already closed. Some are probably going to have to close. So the the repercussions of this, and not just in the the tragic sense of the people that have lost their lives, but the the second and third wave shocks of this, I think, are still unfolding or are going to unfold. But a lot of New York has gotten on with living under this new normal, at least from what I can see. Pandemic insurance. When did Wimbledon get it? And why didn't the other tournaments get it? Uh, they got it a couple of years ago, and I don't exactly... Well, I, I think the reason why is because we're seeing why they thought it would be a good idea. But the reason they're not going to get it is it's really expensive. Why didn't the other tournaments get yeah, it? Yeah, because it's really expensive. And I think they just figure the amount they're going to spend on pandemic insurance... Um, I guess they did the math. You know, I, I would hope they used like they have like an actuary on staff or they could consult and think, okay, you know, the odds of this actually happening based on what it would cost you to pay for it, it doesn't make sense. Of course, now we know what happened. It's a different story. But, you know, you think about all the different policies you sign, you look at the fine print and you see, you know, the whole acts of God and certain things are always exempt from insurance coverage. And like a pandemic is, well, it's like pandemic, war, uh, civil unrest, those types of things. So I think everybody just was in the same boat here thinking it's not really worth spending that kind of money. I know Tennis Australia, for the Australian Open, they have or just lapsed their pandemic insurance. The uh, CEO, Craig Tiley, was talking about that. Let me just double check really quick to see where exactly they are. Um, it expires in July, so that's uh, not great timing for their pandemic insurance to uh, expire in July of 2020. But um, there, the CEO basically said to, I think it was the age in Melbourne, how they're in talks to renew it. But if you're an insurance company, um, you're going to have second thoughts right now about renewing uh, a pandemic policy. So TBD on what the Australian Open in 2021 looks like. Safe to say that Roger Federer is probably sitting somewhere shaking his head about the tournament's that didn't get the pandemic insurance because he probably thinks that they're about as accurate as the Hawkeye system, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Yeah, today. but the Hawkeye system actually does work, whereas the uh, <laughs> Roger doesn't think so. But the pandemic insurance, it's you think this is once in a century thing, and yeah, uh, and again, it's yeah, it stinks to these tennis tournaments. But in terms of the scale of problems in the world, I mean, For the sure. fate of these tennis tournaments is. is pretty far down it's that pretty list small, 100 percent. Yeah. but the wimbledon guys the 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 brain trust of wimbledon's feeling pretty good right now is all i'm trying to say absolutely they got something right and that's why they were able to move so quickly i was wondering why but that makes total sense they had a backstall so okay we're talking about 2007's wimbledon today but let's uh, do a quick catch up on where we're at leading up into wimbledon uh the year 2007 definitely uh, a little more checkered than 2006 for Roger. He wins Dubai, beats Djokovic in the quarters. Djokovic is quickly ascending, and I think that he's going to be a story point for us in a few minutes here. Loses in the first round at Indian Wells to Guillermo Cañas, and then lost again 
to Guillermo Cañas in Miami in the round of 16. What happened to Roger against Guillermo Cañas? Very good question. Cañas was a very good player. He's coming off a, a, a suspension here in early 2007 after, a, I think it was a positive test or some kind of violation that he had incurred in 2005. I wonder how much of just the pressure got to Roger at that point. Because remember, we talked about this going into Australia 2007, U.S. Open 2006. His last loss before Kanyas at Indian Wells, remember, still Andy Murray, Cincinnati 2006. So August of 2006 is still the last time he had lost a tennis match. That Dubai win over Eugenie in the final put him at a 41-match winning streak. So he went to Indian Wells with a lot of pressure on him because if he had gotten to the final there, he would have tied Guillermo Vilas for the all-time winning streak record. If he had won the tournament, he would have his own record. So did that pressure get to him? That's a very good question because he loses to Kanyas in the second round, his first loss, of course, because he had the bye. And then he goes and loses to him again a week later in Miami. Kanyas, though, again, a very good player. He made it to the Miami final. Uh, after beating Federer. So it's not like he was just some guy who played the match of his life, but I'm just amazed at how he was able to back it up from one week to the next. That's the part, you know, it's one thing to catch a guy on a, on a bad day, but then to do it again to him a week later is really, really impressive. Not a stain, but it was definitely something that I highlighted when I was looking through the matches that he played. You don't see it happening very often. I think there is actually, I think it's a record. He's the only player to beat Roger back-to-back besides Nadal, I think. I'm just, I, I saw something that it was an equivalent record of that nature, but I didn't make the note of it. Um, he, of course, is Argentinian, and he's named after Guillermo Villas, who you've mentioned in the past. So there's some connectivity there. His parents thought he would be a professional tennis player, and he became one, which is a pretty cool story unto itself. Um, and he got to number eight in the world in 2005, and he was a three-time quarterfinalist at the French Open. So. Definitely an interesting story point there. Moving along in 2007, leading up to Wimbledon, Roger loses in the final at Monte Carlo to Nadal. And then he loses again in Rome. A lot of losses piling up here. Uh, in the round of 16 to Filippo Volandri. And he loses pretty convincingly to this guy. I had never heard of him until this point. I don't know if you have anything about him. But to your point, maybe that was nerves again. But To me, it seems a little bit more than that. Like it's kind of like to go back to my basketball analogy because that's my safe spot. Sometimes your free throws, you just go through a slump where you just can't make a basket. And it kind of feels like that here. Maybe something personal is going on in his life that we don't know about. There's always that dynamic. Um, But this is very uncharacteristic for what we've seen 10 grand slams in for Roger Federer. Well, I think you have to break it up because, yeah, losing to Kanyas back-to-back, I think it's the back-to-back part that that raises the eyebrows. But then you, you go and lose to Nadal on clay. I mean, that's there's no shame in that. And Filippo Valandri, uh, he was a bit of a journeyman. He's an Italian guy, though, playing in Rome on clay. Again, this is not Roger's best surface. We're still two years away from when he wins the French Open. Um And those are the two Masters titles, by the way, that Federer still to this day has never won, Monte Carlo and Rome. Um, So, yeah, are these good losses? No, no loss is a good loss, but they are somewhat understandable losses. And I think what raises your eyebrow, and this is also a testament to how great this era of Federer was, that's now four tournaments he had entered, Indian Wells, Miami, uh, Monte Carlo, and Rome, where he did not win. 
you know, most players <laughs> don't expect to win every single time out, but Federer goes four tournaments without a title and it's like the world is ending. Then you counter that and he wins the title in Hamburg by beating Nadal. It's the first time he beats Nadal on clay. And that I think speaks to a larger theme of why to me this 2007 year is really impressive for Federer because 05, 06, and you know, I guess the back half of 04, you know, we talked about how he's just this ruthless like killing machine, but in 2007 where he's got a he's in a little bit more of a fight he's got to dig in a bit and fight his corner and the way he does that especially you know exemplified perfectly in the Wimbledon final um the way he does that I think gives him some points because you know I think that's a big test of a champion how do you respond when when you're down and he's not down at this point but he had he had taken a hook let's say he lost uh four straight tournaments by lost, I mean not winning. He's not losing four matches in a row, but he's not winning a title over four straight tournaments. How do you pick yourself up off the carpet and respond from that one? And we got a pretty convincing answer at Wimbledon. So that's why I think there's a lot to be impressed by with this stretch for Federer. Agreed. You mentioned Hamburg, where he beat Nadal. He dropped the first set in that. So he came back uh, to beat Nadal, which is kind of a rare thing. We're used to seeing Roger do his best when he's playing ahead, not from behind. Um, and then he makes it to the final of the French Open, which again, I think kind of washes away these four other losses, uh, tournament losses. Not that they're unimportant, but it shows you his caliber to your point is right where it needs to be. Uh, final of a French Open on his, not his best surface. And I made some clips of this tournament cause I just want to look at it. And people say that he doesn't move as great on clay, but I found some moments where he, he moves better than anybody except for Rod, Rafa Nadal. So he moves pretty damn good on clay as well. But he loses this tournament. They split the first two sets. But I'm going to show you some highlights. Hopefully we have audio today. And I want to contrast that the reason I pulled these clips from this tournament that he lost is to show kind of a compare and contrast with the Wimbledon that we're going to see of 2007. And it, the observation that I have is body language. Roger's body language on the clay surface is decidedly different than it is on the grass at Wimbledon, and you see it. It's just apparent. Here is a clip of Roger. So this French Open, Brian, and the Wimbledon that we're going to see was basically a tale of failed break points. We're going to see a lot of that, okay? Here is a clip of Roger getting two break points against the King of Clay. And you're going to hear my son on this. I apologize. Big Nadolphin. That's movement, if I don't say so myself. Yeah. Oh, no, Federer moves fine on the clay. It's more that just the way his ball, yeah, okay, he's not moving. It slows him down a little bit, but it's more that the clay surface slows down the ball and it gives somebody like Nadal, who's one of the greatest movers of all time, more time to get to pretty much every shot that's going to be played in a rally, except for that gorgeous overhead that Federer put away from the net. So I'm just going to stay on this. Rafa shrugs off both of those breakpoints to win. 
And it could have been 3-1 Federer, but instead it's 2-2. And that was the game that Roger needed to convert as I watched through this match. In the sixth game, Roger gets two more break points. Again, Rafa shrugs them off. But here's Roger getting himself another break point in dramatic fashion. Point being, Roger's going toe-to-toe on his weakest surface. And you kind of see... You kind of see that this could have gone for a minute. For a, there was a window where it could have gone Roger's way, but obviously it falls apart and for a variety of different reasons. But here's him getting himself back some break points. This movement right here. Pay attention to this movement right here. Incredible shot. Magnifique, as the French broadcaster says. The sliding forehand smash that could have been a winner against any other player besides Rafa, but Rafa extends the point to two more shots. This looks like championship form. I mean, he's in the final, obviously, but what do you make of this? I make the Federer's playing you know, extremely aggressive tennis. But again, we see just the incredible defense from Nadal to make Federer come up with two more shots. And he is able to put those two shots away. But we're also seeing why Nadal is just so hard to beat on clay. And we're talking about Federer here, but he's not, certainly he's not playing poorly at this point. It's just, you're going up against this freak who's not going to give you anything. So the slightest opportunity you have, you have to take advantage of it. And that's what Federer was not able to do in this match. So, Rafa fights his way out of that as well. The break points, he's feasting on them at this point. Roger hits a would-be winner wide, and it's way wide. He was mad at this point. There was a long rally, and he just kind of like just took a swing at it. Are those aggressive shots, Brian, uh, that miss wide, are they signals that exchanging long rallies isn't a pathway to victory? Is that a player just basically saying, look, I got to paint the lines or this match is over? Obviously, it all depends on the situation. Um, but at a, at a point, yeah, it's a player saying, like, I need to actually take the initiative here and because I can't just hang out in a rally with this guy all day. Federer certainly knows that against Nadal. Um, so it depends on the situation. But generally speaking, yes. I noticed that in this match in particular, and I haven't watched too many French Opens, obviously, because my boy hasn't been in the final of too many of them. So, like, watching these is almost like landing from Mars and watching tennis. I don't watch a lot of clay tennis. So I noticed that more than normal, he was letting rallies go for exchanges back and forth, but then he would turn or he would pivot or he would do something to signal that he wanted to end the point quickly, win or lose. And that's something that I noticed him do more than on any other surface before. Yeah. It's that extra time you have like four shots in a clay rally. Um, because the service is just slower. There's more time to develop the point. And that's why in the eyes of a lot of, you know, tennis people, I probably count myself here. I think clay court tennis is the best kind of tennis to watch uh, for those reasons, because you can really see how the point is being built. You're watching Federer build these points, then decide, okay, we're going to end this point one way or another. Um, But you can really see the rallies develop and the different options present themselves. And you get to see, which choices the player make. It's basically watching the player navigate a choose your own adventure book. Oh, I love that. Yes, it is. It is very much. You can, it's almost also like developing your board. If you're playing chess, right? You can actually see 
the development or the advancement of the knights a little bit way more than you can because the ball is moving slower. Exactly. So Federer shows steel. Again, he gets two more break points. But Nadal at this point is actually feasting on break points and holds. And I think this is where you see his dominance on clay. Every point is in play for him. Doesn't matter who's serving. Doesn't matter whether he's up or down. Which made me wonder, and I texted you this before we jumped on today, has he lost a French Open final? Negative. He's 12-0. and 0. In finals, yes. He's lost. I mean, his, the record for Nadal at Roland Garros is, is just obscene. It's, um, it's 93-2. So the two are, one is the great trivia answer, who's the first person to beat Nadal at Roland Garros. It's Robin Soderling in 2009 when Federer went on to win the title, beating Soderling in the final. We'll get there down the road. And then he lost to Djokovic in, I think, the quarters in 2015, uh, which was the year that Stan Wawrinka won the tournament. So he has never lost a final at Roland Garros, which is just obscene. Well, we did a GOAT checklist a couple of episodes back, and Roger has lost a Wimbledon final and uh, to Nadal, and I believe Djokovic as well. Yes. And Last year. Rafa has not lost on his surface so there's another sort of dichotomy split if you will at 3-3 on Federer's serve Nadal unloads to break him and then the next game this is again it's it's silly at this point Roger gets three more break points Nadal comes back to win goes up 5-3 I'm not even keeping track here but I feel like we've got at least a half dozen break chances in this set for Roger and it's just absolutely critical or crucial if you have any shot at winning He had his chances, and he's the best in the game at this point, certainly now. Why wasn't he able to convert these break points? Um, I think it's just Rafa is Rafa. Maybe Roger does get a bit tight in some of these moments when he sees this opportunity. And it's just, you know, everything just kind of slows down a little bit on clay, where all of a sudden that quick strike that you would get yourself into in a grass court situation, now you don't have quite that advantage on the clay. And it's just everything takes a little bit longer. It's a little more drawn out to actually go through with it and put it away. And he just couldn't do it. He hits one of his devastating cross-court forehand winners. And it is his point. But Rafa actually got a racket on it, which was, <laughs> which was at that point, just watching it, it makes sense, all the sense in the world. Um, again, the, the court is slower, but it should not have been, a racket should not have been anywhere near the ball that Roger hit. And that was a great moment for him. But ultimately, the final two sets are all Rafa. And Rafa goes on to win. I believe this is his third. Third in a row, yeah. Third in a row at the French. But I just want to say real quick, Vic, and this again, I think, is a testament to Federer. We talk about the consistency and how that's so impressive and it helps his status as the greatest of all time. We're talking about this loss in the Roland Garros final in 2007. Like it's, and yeah, if he, it's not one of the happier days of his career. But this is his eighth, straight major final. There had not been a major final without Roger Federer as a participant since Wimbledon of 2005. So almost two full years, he is playing on the final day of every major. That is remarkable. We talked about the analogy of him being a one-man Golden State Warriors. Even the Warriors lost the final, but they came back. So you're absolutely accurate on that. You're killing it with the uh, comparisons today, man. Good on you. (laughs) Um, Okay. Roger's path to the 2007 Wimbledon final. Actually, let me jump in real quick, Vic, because this is different. This Wimbledon, 
Um, we know about the grass court winning streak. We've been talking about it since the first episode here because that's how long this has gone on since he won Wimbledon in 2003. He enters this tournament now with a 28-match winning streak at Wimbledon. More importantly, though, 48 straight on grass, but he had not played a grass court match since the 06 Wimbledon final because he does not play in Halle which is usually the big warm-up tournament that he always plays in and more often than not wins leading into Wimbledon in Germany, does not play it in 2007. So a different look for Federer because he's coming off a loss and a loss on a different surface. So it's a pretty quick change of gears to get tournament sharp on grass, which he's got to do here at Wimbledon. He plays a cast of characters that we dissected pretty well already. First round, he plays Temuraz Gashvili. Hope I pronounced that correctly. Gabashvili. Gabashvili, thank you. Who beat Fernando Gonzalez uh, later in the year. So that's a big win for him at the U.S. Open in five sets. And a fascinating connection between uh, Gabashvili and what we talked about a moment ago. He was recently coached by Guillermo Cañas. Yes. Yeah, tip of the cap to Gabashvili, who is, by the way, as we sit here in 2020, still out here playing like yeah. challenger doubles and doubles and singles. So he's he's still grinding away. He's uh, mid-30s now. Second round was against uh, one of my favorites, I think one of yours too, Juan Martin Del Potro. He was still finding his game, though. He's wearing a bandana in this match. Uh, we are want to talk about the fashion choices of these players as we go through uh, this little uh, time capsule here. Yeah, Roger handled him pretty well. He looked, uh, when you compare and contrast this to the 2009 final against Roger, he looked like a man. In this one, he kind of looked like a boy trying to find his way as a professional tennis player. But the evolution that took place in just two seasons is quite remarkable. Well, he's, he's 18 years old here. Yeah, um, yeah, no, and you see it. You can totally see it. And the other thing to keep in mind, not only with this match, but as we work through this tournament, you alluded to it in the beginning, um, still no roof at Wimbledon. So that Del Potro match, there was a lot of rain this Wimbledon fortnight. That Del Potro match had to be played over two days, um, which could explain why that third set was so lopsided, um, because maybe that, that second day Del Potro just comes back and is just thinking, what's the point? Um, <laughs> not like in a bad way, but you know, mentally yeah. it's understandable. But when, when you look back at video of this tournament, it looks, the, the, the difference is stark. Like the following year when Nadal beats Federer in that epic final, um, it looks different center court, but they had started building the roof structure. So it, it looked like a little bit more normal. This is just like an open bowl. There is nothing covering the court, covering the stands. It is completely different, which I'm going to guess definitely changed the court conditions because I'm sure the wind would get in there and swirl around. Um, so it is different here in 2007. Uh, third round, Murat Safin. Fourth round, uh, Tommy Haas. W-O, that's walkover? What does that mean? It means he just I mean, didn't Haas play? Haas was, was not able to play. He had okay. gotten hurt. And then Juan Carlos Ferrero in the quarters. Richard Gasquet in the semis. This wasn't quite as dominant as the 2006 U.S. Open, but his match times were, by and large, an hour and a half, two hours, which is pretty you know, remarkable, considering what you just said about having to jump right into Wimbledon after having lost the French and not really having any grass tune-ups or anything else before that. 
you mentioned Gasquet because that, that was Federer's semifinal opponent and it was pretty easy. Gasquet won this epic quarterfinal over Andy Roddick where he mm. came back from two sets to love down, wins uh, two tiebreak sets, then an 8-6 fifth set. So he pulls off this huge win over the third seed Roddick. I'm interested to, we'll never know, what would have happened if Roddick had played Federer in that semifinal? I mean, I think I still think Federer wins, but with the... With the bad luck Roddick had against Federer at Wimbledon, I always wonder, was he ever going to get one of them? And we'll talk a lot about the 2009 final because that certainly seems like the one that Roddick should have won. But what would a 2007 Roddick-Federer match at Wimbledon have looked like? And sadly, we'll never know. Instead, we got a Federer uh, whitewash of Gasquet. (laughs) Speaking of whitewash, that's the segue because I think we need to devote some time to the Federer outfit at this Wimbledon, because I think this was peak, just like like ludicrous for what he would wear onto the court each day. I mean, if you're watching the matches, um, he looks, you know, you're you're wearing all white. You can't really mess that up, but it's a sharp, classic, crisp look. He's got the gold trim now at this point, which I guess he and Nike figured they could do because he's the uh, four, four in a row uh, Wimbledon champion. But, Walking onto the court, he's got white pants on, these big gaudy belt loops. He's wearing a white sweater vest with gold trim. And then, of course, the white jacket. Um, I mean, you go to the butcher counter, and that's what the guy, like the guy might be wearing that. I mean, this is, this is a bit much for, for my taste. The baggy pants was a hard no for me. We're talking about an athlete at the pinnacle of his craft, and we're talking about Nike. Not Under Armour, not Adidas, not K-Swiss. We're talking Nike. I don't know what, I don't know who sanctioned that or who authorized that or who thought that was a good look. I'm totally in lockstep with you. But nevertheless, he wore it and he was the champion, but he wore it to receive his trophy, which I just, I yeah. like, stay, stay in your shorts. That means after winning a five-setter, you put those on. That's yeah. what, I think that's what bothered me. Not walking on is fine. Walking on, people walk on, they do their thing. But after the match, uh, like you, you, we use the boxing analogy often. You know, did Tyson dress up to to put the belt over his shoulder? No. Well, I'll, I'll give you the other side of that argument. The reason why, put, you know, you ever watch a player win a match, they put the watch on. It's because they're being paid to wear it. I mean, if that's a different Nike, story. But the pants, but that, no, he's being paid to wear Nike. He's being paid to wear the Nike. So I think that's why, um, you know, this, this uh, tournament was a couple of years before the, was it the Boz Lerman, uh, Great Gatsby with Tobey Maguire? Uh, maybe they drew some, uh, the people who worked on that movie drew some inspiration from some of the garb <laughs> we saw here six years earlier. I think I told you though, I'm okay with the cardigan. Yeah, I'm okay with it too. At Wimbledon, it's elegant and it works, but I just feel like shorts, especially a sporting event, like there's no need for pants. Sweats? Or like jumpers, maybe at the U.S. Open, but not at Wimbledon, right? Uh, well, actually, you do see them at Wimbledon because it, it gets it, out of all the majors. It's maybe the coolest there. Well, sometimes in Paris, it's cool. So maybe if you really need them, you could wear the pants. Um, I, I agree with you on the sweater. Like I, I do enjoy following cricket, and like there's a good cricket look. You see a guy wearing a sweater, especially at like the Test level where they wear the all whites. Um, so I'll give you the sweater, but the the pant, yeah, the pants is where I think he crossed the line. Uh, Rafa's path, Marty Fish first round three six three. 
Eskauser, second round, 2-4-1. Soderling, you mentioned, beat him at the French. Um, Five-setter here, third round. Soderling came back from down two sets. Soderling will later lose to Roger in a French Open final. Talk a little bit about Soderling's game. He's taking Rafa the distance. He beats Rafa at the French, and he goes to a final against Roger at the French. Uh, what did he figure out that other guys on the tour couldn't? Uh, let, let, can I just backtrack for a second? So I wanted to backtrack because this might have been, I mean, this final is great. If it wasn't for this final um, that we got, I think Nadal Soderling might have been remembered as the match of the tournament. Uh, they had to play it over three days because of the rain. We talked about the five sets, and these guys hated each other as the match went on. Nadal doesn't dislike anybody, but for some reason, he felt that Soderling was just disrespecting him the entire length of the match. Um, he said he wouldn't say hi to him. He was just ignoring him. So Nadal really had a problem with that. Um, then they, they were, there's a little bit of gamesmanship going on with some of the rain delays, and they were blaming each other for that. So a lot of drama about that. Why was Soderling so good? Well, he was really good off both wings, off the forehand side, off the backhand side. Uh, you know, we talked about how Federer's one-hand backhand against Nadal could, could be a weakness at times. Uh, Soderling was equally strong off both wings. He had a ton of power. He moved really well. Bit of an unorthodox uh, stroke, so it's a little bit harder to get a read on. He was just a really fun player to watch. He never looked like he was having fun. He always had a bit of a like a sour look on his face. Um, really sad that his career was short-circuited uh, the way it was by illness. We talked about uh, Mario Ancic a couple of years ago, and now we're talking about it again with Soderling here. Uh, he just had some answers, um, and we'll, we'll talk about him a lot in that 2009 uh, French Open, but this 2007 one with Nadal, I highly recommend anybody to, if you want a, a little bit of a project, to read some of the things that they said about each other. You know, Nadal's got his pre-serve ritual where he picks the seat of his pants. Soderling did that on court. That's a great way to get on Nadal's bad side. You, you, you mock him. Soderling's doing that. So there was a lot of bad blood here, which makes it a little bit more intriguing, in my opinion. Which has got to tell you something about Soderling, right? He's not intimidated by Rafa Nadal. And that probably got under his skin a little bit too. Yeah. Um, I also, I couldn't, I just looked and this is true. One of the all-time great athlete quotes, uh, it was Nadal at the end of this match uh, in press conference. And remember, Nadal's English at this point was not where it is now. So I'm sure the translate, I'm sure he did not mean it this harshly. Nadal's asked after the match how he thought Soderling like handled himself. Um, he said maybe the worst possible, but then this one in the end, we'll see what's happening in the end of life. No. So basically applying that Robin Soderling is going to hell because of the <laughs> way he handled himself in this uh, Wimbledon match. I would venture a guess. Nadal didn't quite mean it that directly, but anytime, uh, you can suggest that your opponent might be ticketed for Hades based on what they did on the court. You know, there was some bad blood spilled. Wow. How does their relationship with the French when he beats them? Or do you want to save that for that tournament? We will save that for that tournament. Okay, let's save it. Just stay tuned for the Robin Soderling, Rafa Nadal rematch at uh, the French Open. Couple of them. Next round, another five-setter for Nadal. Eugenie this time. Uh, Nadal comes back down two sets. So he's up two sets against Soderling. And then he swing, the pendulum swings back and 
Now he's down two sets against Eugenie, and he comes back to win this match. So two five-setters for Rafa versus a pretty breezy path to the final, and a, including a walkover for Roger. Next round, I would argue clearly by the two, next two names, I'm going to say here that Rafa clearly had a harder path to this final. Uh, Burdick beats him in straight sets, 6-4-2. Uh, but then Djokovic. Djokovic in a semifinal at Wimbledon, so young. And here he is, Brian. He has arrived, okay? Uh, won the first set, and I watched that first set, and it was a dominant first set. And as we know, he had pain coming into this match. He retired in the third set because of an infected blister uh, on the heels of a five-setter against Baghdadis. So he won despite, in spite of the injury, I should say. Uh, he was ranked four in this Wimbledon. Brian, are we having a different conversation if he didn't retire from this match? Does he win? Um. No, because I think once Nadal figured out that he was compromised because the toe was a problem, but he was also dealing with a back issue. So he just wasn't moving well. Um, talking about Djokovic. So I think once Nadal, and Djokovic even said it after the match, that once Nadal figured that out, and the numbers certainly bear that out, it was one-way traffic. I mean, after that first set, Nadal lost two games out of the next 10. Um, and also, I don't think Djokovic at this point is remotely equipped to handle Federer in a Wimbledon final. Um, we'll see him in, in a final in a few months at the U.S. Open. But Wimbledon final 2007 was not uh, going to go Djokovic's way against Federer. I just don't think he was seasoned enough for that at that point. I think this is another Federer title, and he probably doesn't get pushed to five sets against Djokovic. Certainly confident enough, though. Fair? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one thing that certainly has never been lacking with Djokovic. And this is that time with Djokovic. Um where the injuries in the body were an issue. And, you know, he was the first man to ever retire from a Wimbledon semifinal. You, you don't want to retire from any match, but especially at that point of a tournament. So that did give him a bit of a, of a I don't know if bad rap's the word, but there were question marks around him. Andy Roddick would poke fun at it a couple yeah. of years uh, later with the made the joke about SARS and bird flu and all the different ailments he had. Um, and he gets hot too. He would, he would overheat a lot. I would yeah, in and a lot of that I think was breathing related, but it, it is remarkable. And, you know, he's certainly, I mean, I'm understating it here, but to say he turned it around, he's maybe the greatest player ever, but yeah, you know, we talked a lot about the, how he cut gluten out of his diet and the, the different diets and practices he follows, but it is very noticeable. Just when you look at him um, from this time in 2007, you can say this about a lot of players, but certainly Djokovic, like his face just looks a little puffier. Like he, by no means is he out of shape, but when you look at him there and you look at him now, you can really see a difference. It's almost like thousand percent. Like he's just got a like a rounder, fuller face. He looks more like like it's just taxing on the court. And you look at him now, he looks like a machine. Yeah, his torso. I, I saw him hitting balls on on Instagram or somewhere on the internet a couple of days ago, and his torso is just he's he's lean, but his torso looks like just it just looks like iron. To, to try right. to go to the Drago. He's like a piece of iron. He just looks like a piece of iron um, in contrast to Roger, who's a little bit more bendable and nimble and sort of uh, not, as, not as rigid, I guess. My comparison is not really going so well here, but there's this sturdiness to, to Djokovic that you don't see with other players. You know, he is rock solid, but he's maybe the most flexible player we've ever seen. If you watch 
just some of the positions he's able to contort himself into. How you remember he was the first guy to really slide well on hard courts. He would never slide on a hard court, but the way he does it, and he's able to come down almost into a full split and total control of his body. I mean, it's it's almost painful to watch, but to be able to do that you would have a hard time 10, 15 years ago thinking that the Djokovic you're watching then would be doing that in 2020. By the way, sliding on a hard court, is that ill-advised? I mean, it's ill-advised unless you can do it, which is, I guess, the easiest way to say it. And Djokovic can do it. Um, but, like sli- turning, but turning an ankle, that's, that's, where, that's where it will happen, right? On a hard court. Yeah, but that could, you, I mean, you could turn it on, on the clay too. You could. okay. Um, I think the thinking is just, it's a less forgiving surface, obviously the hard court, but if you can nail it, then why not? And we've seen Djokovic nail it more times. Like there, yeah, there's absolutely risk attached to it, Yeah, but he's able to do it. The final five sets back and forth. Roger wins the first, Rafa wins the second, Roger wins the third, and so on and so forth. Three hours, 45 minutes. Virtually every match up to that point was in the hour 30 range for Roger. So this is a, there's a clear, it just, it just tells you the bar that Rafa's already at, right? Between the way that they've separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Um, this match was considered the greatest Wimbledon final since McEnroe Borg in 80. Obviously, uh, the next one we talk about, even though Roger lost, I think we're still going to talk about it, 2008's Wimbledon. That is considered the greatest match ever. Am I right? At the time, it was. Um, it might benefit from recency bias, but yeah, it's. Does that still hold water? By the way, is 2008's Wimbledon final still the best tennis match ever played? I always look at um, that and the 2012 Australian Open final, as far as the men's side, um, and that Djokovic and Nadal final that was like six hours and they couldn't stand up at the end. Um, and as sir, I think we've, I think we've said this before too. It's you look at it's like the stakes. Like, yeah, there's probably been like a third round match in, you know, Auckland, New Zealand. That's been just as good, but the two players ranked, you know, 48 and 67 in the world. Like, okay. So quality, it's just as good as a major final, but the stakes obviously aren't as high. And Uh, the stage. Yeah. And the stage and what's on the line. Um, but I, I always look at, at those two, um, in, at least in, in this century, the 08 Wimbledon final and the 12 Australian Open final. I'm going to throw out some quick observations at you, and then I have a bunch of clips we're going to uh, re- have you review and comment on 24 aces for Roger to Rafa's one, 65 winners to Nadal's 50. Roger had eight breakpoint chances and converted three, and Rafa had 11 and converted four. Again, he could not convert enough break points to make this match go his way, similar to the French. Um, I noted the confidence earlier. Roger's confidence and demeanor is wildly apparent here as compared to at the French, Um, especially when you watch the two matches side by side. He goes up 3-0 in the first set, and you almost think he's going to run away with it for a second, but then contrast this with last year's Wimbledon, Nadal comes back. And he makes it 3-3, which I thought was a big statement for him. Massive statement for him. First tiebreak gets to 7-7. The third set gets to another tiebreak, and Roger wins that one pretty easily. So they have their sort of moments of shining in each one of those tiebreakers, even though Roger wins both of them. In the fourth set, Rafa breaks in the first game, which was a big message. 
Uh, it was his second sort of like, hey, I am here and I'm not going to go away. And then this bad call, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about the clip of it, but a bad call essentially throws off Roger. Um, and I kind of was disappointed. It, it, had he not let that get into his head, he probably could have made this more of a, of a set, but he's clearly dismantled by it. And we'll show the clip and then talk about it. The fifth set, just to put the sort of observational keystone on this, Nadal gets two break points in the third game. He has a chance to basically win this fifth set. Um, and there was a moment where there's enough tension to actually think that that Roger's actually thinking about it. He's actually blinking. Um, but Federer holds. Nadal gets two more break points in the fifth game. Again, he's staring down the barrel of a Wim- his first Wimbledon victory and essentially breaking Roger Federer as far as I'm concerned. But Roger comes back and wins. At the end of the match, Roger says he deserved it today. It basically could have gone either way which I thought was a massive reveal. And I don't know who was interviewing them at the end of the match, but the person who, the woman who was interviewing Rafa said, we're sure you're going to get this next year. And it was very prescient because first of all, it was all, she was saying it from a sort of like a very neutral point of view, but how, whether he internalized that or whether that was just like Nostradamus or something, um, I cringed when I heard that this time watching through it extremely prescient before the highlights. What do you, what do you have to say about those observations and what were observations of your own? Well, I think the observations date back to what I was saying before, how this tournament or this final, at least was reflective of what was a scrappier year for Federer and the fact that he's still able to win it. Great word. I almost, I almost value that more than if he had just gone out and dominated over three sets. Like, yes, that's its own standard of excellence. But to be pushed like that, he had not played a five-set match at Wimbledon since his famous win over Pete Sampras in 2001 that basically ended uh, Sampras' last chance to win Wimbledon. That was the last time he had, won a, he had played a five-setter at Wimbledon. Nadal, meanwhile, had won, I think it was seven straight five-set matches. So in that regard, Federer getting drawn into a slugfest is not where he wanted to be, but to be able to handle it and all the adversity that went against him. Um, the other thing that I, I think is is telling, you, you said the stat in the beginning, it was what, he had three breaks of serve? Mm. Two of them were in the fifth set, one of yeah. which was, was to win the match. So it's, it's not so much the quantity, it was the quality, the big moments when he really needed them. He was able to come up with those breaks. And I think that was the theme for me uh, from this final for Federer. Great distinction, Brian. Great distinction. Absolutely. It's the quality of the breaks that makes it more devastating depending on what side of the break you're on. Okay. Got a bunch of clips. Review and comment. This is Nadal, uh, a Nadal return winner at 3-1 Federer in the first set. Yeah. I mean, well, that's a, I I would say a, Average to poor serve from Federer, just put it kind of right in the middle of the box, didn't get much action on it. And to a lefty in the deuce court there into his forehand, I mean, Nadal can put that away any day. That looks so strange with that open roof. Mm, um, it's crazy, it looks, like right? it looks like they're playing at like Glastonbury. Um, but yeah, that's just, but that's another reminder for Federer there of I can't give this guy any opening because that's what he'll do to me. Here's Nadal serving with Roger up 5 4.
I'll go halfway through so you can just kind of see how Rafa sets it up. So that, that whole point is just beautiful. Um, a lot of action from the baseline. We were thinking, okay, Federer's not comfortable. But one thing that I really like there as Federer's just trying to do everything possible just to find a way past Nadal, which he really can't do, um, you see why the slice is such a great shot. And you see Roger do it. You see both guys in that point use the slice in every which way possible. You see him use it as kind of this neutral shot, just get the ball back, almost a defensive shot. Like, okay, this is the only play I have right now. Let me just slice it back and hope he doesn't crush it back at me. And then you even see Federer going to more of an offensive slice where he really attacks the ball and dips it down low on Nadal. And that's why that shot is just so valuable and really so underrated because it's not necessarily the highlight real shot, but when you can use it well, it gives you so many different options. Right here for me, Brian, um, when he hits this shot, I think he thought it was a winner right here, this shot. It felt like a winner to him, and he kind of stalled there for a second, and he wasn't perfect. His his court positioning wasn't optimal, and it kind of got away from him. Yeah, he got caught watching the shot. Yeah, he, Yes, he, he there you go, exactly. Line that backhand, and he put some some swing on it. So it was going towards the outside of the sideline up the left side of the court. Nadal's nowhere near it. And again, that's the speed of Nadal just to be able to get back and get strings on that ball. But I agree with you. I mean, and with good reason, because against most players, that's it's an a easy winner. winner. Uh, next one I got for you is the first set tie break gets to eight, seven. Here's set point. Yeah, so play that one more time. Yep. So that return from Nadal was so good that Federer had to really scramble back and just pick the ball off his shoe top. So to be able to recover the way he did and then leave no doubt by coming into net and just volleying the backhand home, that's like an old school Wimbledon finish to that point. But the start of that point, he was not at all comfortable. That's a really impressive recovery. It's also a really impressive shot of the of center court right there. It looks like. I don't even know. It looks like a high school stadium. Yeah. Yeah. Wild, wild. Moving along, Brian, to the second set at 5-4 Nadal. Here's Roger serving. The observation here was what happens to Nadal. So Nadal winds up on his backside and is able to hit a winner from it because they both Play it one more time. I think they both sort of overran the ball in on separate shots. The doll just blocks it back, and it, the block traveled deeper. So Federer had to reach behind him, and he was able to get enough depth on his shot going over. Then the doll had overrun it, so he had to reach behind him, wound up sitting down, but also wound up finding an angle where he was able to pass Federer. And that's just one of those scramble points that's probably not going to dictate the outcome of a match, but it'll give you – at least a feel as to what we're watching. And that is these two guys who are just, there's not much between them because they can both do pretty much anything from pretty much anywhere on the court. hundred percent. The observation that I have here is that the, he returned it, but he barely got it over. It was basically just a prayer return. Roger could have put this ball away at an angle, but he didn't, he gave him, he kept the point alive. He hit it right to Rafa. Had he hit it, across the court a little bit more. I felt like it would have been his point, but maybe he didn't have the footing to do that. Well, I mean, obviously. Yeah, no, I I think it looks easier 
uh, it, than it yeah, would it looks, been. It's very easy to armchair quarterback is what yeah. you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Especially in tennis. Yeah. Um, tennis is like the ultimate, they make it look so easy sport. Especially um, Roger yeah. and Rafa. Yes. Especially the number 200 in the world. I mean, yeah. if, and if you or I were to go out and hit with them, you wouldn't put a ball back and play. No. Uh, and here's Rafa with set point on Roger's serve. Returns are just ridiculous. That's like watching somebody ram like a battering ram into a brick wall and it starts to chip and then you know it's just going to go right through because Nadal is just bringing brute power after brute power and Federer is doing well to keep it alive but then as Rafa just is able to load up and fire it he almost knocks down Federer and that's what you're up against if you're Federer and if you're anybody else that's why Nadal has been just so hard to beat for the last 15 years. Here's Roger in the fourth set, lamenting the Hawkeye. Bit of background, though. This is yes. the first time when we talked about Hawkeye. Uh, I believe it was the last episode. Um, it's making its way into the tennis world. But this here, Wimbledon 2007, the first time it is used on the show court. So on center court, uh, you're allowed the challenges. I would say Hawkeye is probably the best replay system we have in, in any sport just because of how simple it is. Um, but Federer is not a big fan of Hawkeye. Let's watch. Sure, I was happy to the point where I was like, I'm happy he challenged. Because I knew he was going to burn. How in the world was that ball? Mm. Shit. Hey, look, look, it's gone now. I mean, it's just killing me today. <laughs> What's this system? So. Just for background, why he is so upset with with Carlos Ramos? He's not upset with Carlos Ramos. Carlos Ramos, a chair umpire who you might know from the uh, Serena Williams Naomi Osaka U.S. Open final of a couple mm. of years ago. Um, Nadal had cha- had hit a ball from his baseline. Federer watched it. Ball was called out. Nadal challenges. Carlos Ramos also didn't see him right away. Nadal had to ask a couple of times. You're, the rule is you have to ask immediately. Um, well. There's a future great Federer getting angry video a few years later where he didn't think the uh, ask came soon enough. The doll does <laughs> ask right away. Ramos uh, just didn't see him. So the, they put the, the score or the, the shot up of, on the Hawkeye on the, on the video boards, which are new this year on center court, and it shows the ball was in. And if you looked, I mean, the margin of error for Hawkeye, I think, is 2.2 millimeters. It's, I would say, within the margin of error. Like, it just grazed the back of the baseline. So Federer is furious. I mean, he's not throwing a racket, but he walks over to Carlos Ramos and basically asks him, can you turn it off? Like, turn the machine off. That's a, a favorite Federer trend of mine that that kind of emerged in the second half of his career where if, he's not usually arguing with officials, but he's just in this mindset of, like, defying reality where he's like, no, that's that's not the case. Like, I saw it this way. Like, that's wrong. Um, and that was sort of what he was doing there, but yeah, he was not happy. Uh, did not love Hawkeye when it first came out. He was never that great with challenges. He's gotten a little bit better. Sometimes he'll just use it as almost like a, like a way to move on. Um, you'll see him do that. Uh, he's gotten better with it, but it's not a, uh, it's not a goat part of his game. Let's say that. It's funny. You mentioned, um, that he, he sort of, he has like this distorted view. It's kind of reminds me of Steve jobs. They said that he had like a distortion field around him and he saw just saw the world a different way rogers probably thinking hawkeye 
I'm a Hawkeye. Right. You, you want a, you yeah. want Hawkeye? I'm the Hawkeye. I can see the ball on my opponent's side of the court. I can tell you if it's in or not. Hawkeye, I'm the, I'm your guy. That's sort of the demeanor yeah. he's always had. And I will also echo what you said. Um, I've seen him use it to the point where um, it's a way to uh, to mourn the point, to let it go. Uh, he'll like he he knows it's out, but he does it to sort of to to yeah. reset his brain a little bit, and that's okay. It's well within the rules of the game. I mean, it's why they exist, right? Um, okay, fifth set. Here's Roger finding his path to the win. So I just want to say, going into this fifth set, I think yeah. You know, it would have been interesting. Gambling's a dirty word in tennis, but it would have been interesting if to look back in terms of like the real time odds. And like, I wonder what the odds were going into this fifth set because you're watching, it doesn't feel like he has any momentum. Um, he has not been tested like this at Wimbledon in, in six, seven years. Nadal seems like he's playing with the momentum. He's beaten Federer on every surface so far. So I, I'm interested in, in terms of, like where the money was going into this fifth set. Mm. I'm with you. The, the, the one thing that we've talked about over and over again is that Rafa leads in head to heads. Right. And, and clearly to extend the, the pun pun intended, he's in Roger's head. And for me personally, watching this, this Wimbledon and even more bolstered by your point that he just went from the French to this pretty much, he was confident. He was not he was not letting Rafa get to him the way that I think I've seen. The way that I going back all the way back to um the tournament was it Miami their first match against yeah. each other where he lost. He looked very different playing Rafa then than he does today and they've gone through wars together. The other thing too it's like if you're I just want to look up the exact number. Like if you're the reason why there's so much confidence, I mean Federer at this point has won 10 majors. Like he's going for his 11th major here. Nadal's won three of them. He's in a major final. Like these, these guys are in a different stratosphere. So that level of confidence, I, I would say is like well-deserved. Thousand percent. But also you got to have, like, you have to have that. Like you can, if you let some, even if you're at the top of your game, right? Like batters, they get into Alex Rodriguez. I mean, he couldn't hit the ball for what felt like three months. He was the one of the best swingers and one of the best hitters in the game, but it's it's a mental thing as much as it is having the 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 history to back you up, right? You're absolutely right. Ten majors, but when you're playing a guy like this, I would argue that if your head's not in the right place, those ten majors don't mean anything. It's like, what have you done for me lately? And too often with Roger, my pain point with him as a fan is I've seen him give these looks to Roger, to Rafa and to Novak. And I feel like more than anything, and this is just me, the lay fan and the ultimate Roger apologist saying that I think in a lot of these matches, he, he lost rather than got beaten. And I know that there's no data to back that up, but I feel like the, the head game is as important, if not more important than your accolades coming in. Yes. Okay. Here's the fifth set. Roger finding his path to the win. He's got that eye of the tiger, Brian. There's McEnroe talking in the background. You can't hear him. Should have been a Nadal winner, but he gets it. Yeah, Nadal wasn't able to do enough with that at net, and so it just sits up for Roger to come in and easily put it away. Um and again, it's that that scrappiness factor. Like, okay, 
you know, you, you throw everything we talk about, the style and how good they are. It's the fifth set of Wimbledon. Like, it comes down to these kinds of points. We saw that here with Federer. You know, we saw it going the other way against him in last year's Wimbledon final, 2019, with the match points he had against Djokovic. It's at a certain point, all the other stuff just gets thrown by the wayside, and it just comes down to putting the ball in play and doing it the right way. Here's Roger breaking Rafa and sealing his fifth straight Wimbledon. This is a beautiful exchange. And an exultation, I believe, at the end. Yeah, just that that feeling to You got him. Outslug I got him. You. Yeah. And now it's I can go serve for the Wimbledon for the Wimbledon title after just this exchange of big time body blows. Nadal had a couple of miss hits in there. So you wonder if that long run of five set matches I might have just caught up to him a little bit in this fifth set. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's who can take that last punch and here it's Federer. In many ways, that moment is more pivotal or profound than the actual match point because that's when he realizes. He actually realizes that the match is his now. And uh, it's just a cool, just a cool, for any player, whether we're talking about Roger Federer or not, <clears throat> that moment when you have that sort of awakening on the court and the crowd knows and you know and your opponent knows. Right. Uh, very cool stuff. Here's match point. Their second of three consecutive Wimbledon finals. Um, the next one we're going to talk about as well, obviously, but this is just a beautiful moment for tennis and for any fan of tennis. Who's he looking at right there, Brian? Uh, probably, yeah. He looks off to the side where the box is. You also see uh, Bjorn right Borg. Yeah, that's he's looking yeah. at the box uh, courtside. But you also see the camera right after that flash is to Bjorn Borg, which is important because he here has joined Bjorn as the only players to win a tournament five years in a row. Both did it, um, well, but the only two to do it in the open era, the only time, only to do it really in the modern era. So there's so much history on the line. Every time we talk about Federer, and this is just more of that added history. And this one, though, this match point is just so iconic because the way he closed it out, I think they still, in one of his, uh, maybe it's Rolex or somebody he endorses, I think that match point you see in commercials to this day because, I mean, you put it away at net and just fall to your knees in this ecstasy. Yeah, it's Rolex, right? Yeah. 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 Beautiful stuff. Uh, Gives you chills just watching it now, man, and it happened so long ago. It's very, very cool. Um. And that's all she wrote on Wimbledon 2007, Brian. Uh, final thoughts. Um, first five-setter final for Roger, now tied with Laver and Borg. For major, for major for, titles? For majors. Yes. How banal does that sound now, though, uh, as far as now that we know how far Nadal and Djokovic have come to be at 11 majors? Um, or does winning 11 majors, no matter what, put you in elite status? Even... Even though these three guys have far surpassed all the records, is it fair to say, Brian, 
that this trio dominance is, isn't going to happen again, that it was an outlier event? I don't see it happening again, but you, I don't know if you could have, excuse me, if you could have seen this happening, you know, it's 11, 11 what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is like, we're kind of like, we're, yeah, we we're just 11. a little over halfway yeah. through our, our journey here. We're in the back nine, if you will. We still got nine more to right. go to get to 20. Is 11 still a big deal? Oh my gosh. Yes. Especially at the time as it's happening. I mean, half of 11 is a huge deal. Not that you're going to win five and a half majors, but if you win five majors, think of, think about the great players who never won five majors. Let me see if I can pull this up. Like, I think Jim Courier is maybe like a five-time major champion. David um, Nelbandian? No, not quite. Um, <laughs> I mean, Agassi, I think he's a five-time major champion. Eight. 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 eight right. Um, I just want to, just for a taste of the, yeah, the caliber please, please. We're, we're doing here. Edberg, I think, is five. Like Sharapova's won five on the women's side. Yeah. Um, let's see. All time. Uh, five. Tony Trabert, Great American. So that's pre-open era. So there's no, actually, no, here's the open era. Yeah. You know who won five majors in the open era? I know this is misrepresenting it. Rod Laver. Um, but obviously a lot of his titles were pre-open era. Uh, same with John Newcomb, for that matter. He won five. He's one of the greatest of all time. Then you look at the six-timers. So Boris Becker, Stefan Edberg, uh, John McEnroe won seven. So we're at just about half of their career hall or double their career hall. And these guys are all-time icons. So 11 is is crazy. You know, if you're a tennis player, you would probably trade year to, years off your life to win one. And then to yeah. do it 11 times is remarkable. And I think it's something that we're going to get more and more appreciative of as we move on through through this. Because I, I think here at Wimbledon 2007, maybe next week uh, wraps it, but I think it's we're, we're seeing the sort of end of the Federer just sheer dominance. Yes. Um, yes, I would argue that the 2008 uh, Wimbledon final was the changing of the guard from the standpoint of him being the standalone best player in tennis. Fair? Um, it might have that part of it might have already changed, like the standalone part. But in terms of the just ruthless machine going through everything, yeah, that might be coming to an end sometime around here. So this is a a bit of a transition time. I think that's something to, you know, we talked about it 2006 Wimbledon where Federer beats Nadal more comfortably than he did here, but it, it was still never comfortable. And you're watching this. And you're thinking Nadal's going to win this tournament maybe next year, which of course we know he did. Um, so I think that this is a transition time for Roger. Um, yeah, he had won nine majors after this. So there's certainly, he's almost halfway there. Um, but it's, these are now, we're in a different phase. And in many ways, you could argue a more impressive phase because we are seeing certainly prime Nadal. We're going to get to prime Djokovic. Uh, Andy Murray is going to play a big role here in the next couple of years. And those players, with all due respects to the Nalbandians and Roddicks of the world, are better players than that previous group that Federer was contending with. Even Wawrinka is better than those guys, I would argue. Um, he's right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of those. Yeah, you can start to get, you know, you do like a 1-1 comparison. But yeah, it's the the overall crop. Better competition, the back nine for Roger, for sure. Yes. 100%. Any stray items or final thoughts for you? Um, no, because we were able to cover my three favorite things here were Federer's, uh, Hawkeye meltdown, uh, the outfit. And of course the, uh, Robin Soderling might be down for hell because of his dealings with Nadal in their match. So those are my three favorite. 
I can't wait to talk about that in, when in Rogers French Open because he loses to he beats Nadal in that. So we'll we'll definitely dive into that match. Um, what's on tap for a championship? Uh, or a Grand Slam number 12. Number 12 is a one-off, and it's a one-off because it is the only time Federer beat Novak Djokovic in a major final. It's Novak's first major final. It's the 2007 U.S. Open. Uh, we have uh, the birth of Darth Federer uh, was at this U.S. Open. Another, uh, I think we saw that against in another pretty comprehensive win over Roddick. Uh, we're going to meet a guy named John Isner who put a scare into Roger that day. I was in Ash Stadium. I remember that well on Labor Day weekend. Um, but yeah, Djokovic Federer U.S. Open final. That's the headliner here for next up on Game Federer. And it so begins the Vic cringing portion of the podcast <laughs> because all the Djokovic matches are going to put me into various forms of depression. Um, Brian, it's been great as always. Thanks so much. Um, stay well. I'm glad the city is humming and buzzing again. Hopefully, this, uh, I just saw that the coronavirus cases went up and the Dow Jones crashed 1,800 points as a result. Hopefully, this stabilizes. Um, uh, it's a it's a crazy world out there, um, but this is a nice this is a nice refuge from that. So I'll see you next week, buddy. Absolutely, stay well, everybody.